The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. Good. It's good to be with you. We're back before. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. I especially want to welcome families that are here after such a special day. Uh, in case you're like, what are we doing today? It's parent commissioning day. That was something we do every year as a church. That's what you can move for that. Um, we're really excited. Uh, we like it loud here. So I uh, hope you were prepared um, for that. We think Jesus is, is worth making much of. Uh, grab your Bibles. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the seatback somewhere in your row. Grab that. That's where we're going to be hanging out today. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we started something a few weeks ago where our main teaching text isn't on the screen because we want to help narrate and get your faces into the Bible. What we're here to do every Sunday is not to just consider some words from me or from Garrison or from Dan or from somebody else, but from the Word of God. And so we want our faces in the Word of God. So grab the Bible, Ephesians 2. Before we get there, if you would, let's stand one more time. It's been our practice. Let's read the creed together. This is our confession as followers of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you can just stand and watch us as we confess what we believe. Together, church, this is the Apostles' Creed. Read it with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Before you guys see, let's pray. Lord, we come before you humble hearts. Even if that's not true, we want it to be true. Eager hearts, expectation that you might, in this moment, as you are with us in the Holy Spirit, that you might speak. And if you don't, well, we have no hope. So we are banking on your promise. That you will not let your word return to you. She will take it as a seed. We put it into our hearts. The kingdom of God will grow. So we surrender our offenses to you. We surrender our distractions to you. We surrender our doubts to you. Your kingdom will live as if that's true. Lord, help us. Be with us. Speak to us. We need you. We love you. For all these things in Christ's name, Lord, I think we Congrats, Well, uh, believe it or not, we are in week 10 of our Apostles' Creed series. Three weeks to go. We've come today to, I believe, one of the more difficult lines of the Creed, and that is this. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Now, just to get it out of the way from the jump, when we say or we confess 
Catholic. When the Creed says we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, it does not mean Big C Roman Catholic. So you have to remember, the Creed was written around 200 AD, 1300 years or so before the divisions began of what we now know as Catholic and Protestant. And so the word here doesn't carry the connotation of Roman Catholic, but rather the old meaning of Catholic, meaning universal or global. And so when we confess, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we are confessing that the church is made up of those who trust in Jesus from every culture, every continent, from every time, and from every place in the world. And you can go across the world today and back throughout history until you reach Jesus and find communities of God's people gathered around the preaching of the word, the sacraments of baptism and communion, and the lifting up of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might ask, so what's so difficult about this? Like, it seems to be good. Like, we can just kind of move on to filling all over some babies, wrap it up, and let's go to brunch, right? Like, why is this line so difficult? What's so difficult about confessing our belief in the global church? Well, to be honest with you, not a lot. There's nothing really all that difficult about confessing our belief in the church global. The difficulty comes with our confession and belief of the church local. Our difficulty is not with the fact that we, if we are followers of Jesus, are part of his global big C church. The difficulty comes with the expectation of church history, and the expectation of the New Testament, and the expectation of Jesus that we would work out and live out our big C church identity in little c local church expressions. That's where the creed is difficult. Because let's be honest, it's hard to be a part of a local church, is it not? It can be scary. Especially for those of us in some form of church hurt in our background, we can feel daunting and vulnerable to try to put ourselves out there in trust to a group of people. It can be costly. There's sacrifices that have to be made. It requires something of us that takes time and energy and effort. It can be embarrassing. When we see Christians acting a certain way, we can be like, do I really want to associate with that group of people? Do I really want to acknowledge my identity and belonging in that Maybe even for those of us who desire it or believe in it or want to be a part of it, it can times just feel tired. Is it worth it? Like, I've been doing this church thing for a while now, and it just feels like I'm taking more losses than wins. Right? And so we're left with some options. When we reach that difficulty, we're left with a few choices. One, we can run. We can pull the whole, I'm a part of the church, just not a part of a church. It makes no sense in the context of the scriptures. We can put our heads in the sand and just kind of ignore all the problems. Church is good. Church is great. Here's the pros. Or we can puff ourselves up, try to convince you that all the other churches out there, those are the churches with problems. But this church, this church. But I just don't think any of that's good. I especially don't think any of that's biblical. Instead, here's what I want to do this morning. I want us, here's my goal. I want us to be able to walk out of this room this morning with two things. First, being totally honest about the flaws of the church. Being completely, brutally honest about the ways the church goes wrong. And second, to be totally committed to the church. That's my goal. I want us to walk out of here going totally honest about all the ways the church is messed up and yet totally committed to being a part of it for the rest of our lives on earth. And I'm convinced in order to get there, we need to see three things. Number one, we need to see what the church is meant to be. Who are we supposed to be as the people of God? Second, we need to see why we cannot be that. And then third, we need to ask the question, is there any hope for us? What is the church meant to be? Why can we not be that? And is there any hope? So hopefully you're at Ephesians 2. Now we're going to start in verse 13. Let me read it for us. 
This is the word of the Lord. It says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you were no longer strangers and aliens, but you were fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together to a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Let's first talk about what the church is meant to be. The text gives us two images or metaphors to describe the church as God intended. And the first image we're given is in verse 19. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, great church name, with the saints and members of the household of God. So the Greek word that Paul uses here for household is the word of chaos, which is the word that means family in the broadest sense. So it obviously includes mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, but in this time, the household would also include your uncles and your aunts and your grandparents and your cousins and even your household servants in the old Roman world. So it's your, your household, your broader family. So when the text says that we are to be the household of God, the emphasis is on family, but specifically family unity. Not family like we're tempted to think about it in the Western world, where even the best expressions are just all of us helping individuals be better individuals. The church, as it looks in the ancient Near East, where there's a strong sense of group identity. Family in the ancient Near East is where you got your work. It's where you got your vocation. It's where you got your retirement plan. It's where you got your place of safety from the broader world. It's where you learn to work out interdependence on other humans, where you are both me and neither. And that's what the church, Paul says, is meant to be. It's meant to be a family, but not just any family. A family with fit, relational unit. A family that not, cannot be easily pulled apart. A family that feels responsibility for the well-being of every other member. Maybe you've heard this phrase before, the old cliche, blood is thicker than water. Anybody ever heard that? Blood is thicker than water. Part of the origin of that phrase was actually religious. It was a way of trying to communicate family ties, blood, are thicker, stronger, longer-lasting than the ties of the waters of baptism, than religious ties. Paul says that's actually not supposed to be true. That actually, in the kingdom of God, blood is not thicker than water. Water is thicker than blood. Now, we love our families. We care deeply about our families. We love our parents and our grandparents. We have so much deep respect and need. There's a way in which we, we love and want to live in deep relationship with our biological family, but the nature of what God does in the kingdom of God is that he takes blood being thicker than water and actually makes water thicker than water. This is not just me saying this. This is Jesus, right? Matthew chapter 12. He's teaching. He's surrounded by a crowd, and the religious leaders come up to him, and they're like, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. But what is Jesus' response? Awesome. Let him in right away. No, what's his response? Who are my mother and my brothers? For those who do the will of my Father in 
church is meant to be a family, a family with God as our Father, where we find brothers and sisters. It's meant to be a family with deep relational unity. It's meant to be a family where the fatherless can, in fact, find fathers, where the motherless can find mothers, where the lonely can find welcome. The church is meant to be a family where the childless gain more children than they can even just a few minutes at the end of the gathering, we're going to do this parent commission. And it's meant to be a challenge to our parents to be the primary disciple makers in their homes. To take ownership and responsibility of seeing their children belonging to God and not ultimately to them. And so they're to raise them up in the gospel and then send them into the world for the glory of God. But here's the deal. This is not just going to be a challenge for them. It's also a challenge for us who call citizens church home. Because it's not just commitments they're making to raise these children, it's commitments that we are making to raise these children. That their discipleship is our goal. That their care is also our responsibility. That's what I mean when I say I want to be a part of this church family. That if I were to drop dead tomorrow, then I know that not only Lindsay, but my girls would be taken care of. Looked after. Watched. You know what I meant from the parents? Don't you want that? Don't you want the ability to say, man, heaven forbid, something happens to me, but my family would be okay because I've got a broader family that extends beyond just these four walls. That's what we're going at. The church is a family, interwoven, interdependent, needy and needed, where we care for one another, and pray for one another, and serve one another, and welcome one another, and weep with one another, and rejoice with one another, and so on, and so forth. Second image the text gives us of what the church is meant to be is found in verse 21 and 22. It says, In whom, in Christ, the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The first image is family, the second image is the temple. Now how about what is a temple? Well, a temple is a holy place. It's a physical building that has spiritual significance. So in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where heaven met earth. It was the place where God's presence came to dwell among his people in a special and unique way. And so the text says that the church, as a temple, means the church is to be a place where God's presence is experienced and encountered and felt in a tangible and powerful way. And you notice, that doesn't mean the building, right? Paul is using an architectural metaphor about a place of transcendence and beauty and power to make a point about what now should be true about the people of God. It's not the brick and mortar that makes the church a holy temple. It's the sense of God's presence and power. That's why you can have, when you go to these large cities, these beautiful Gothic-style, raised ceilings, Michelangelo-painted buildings that have no sense of the presence of God. And you can have a group fitness group that about... Two hours from now, we'll hold uh, cardio fitness and cardio pump. I looked them up just to make sure I understand. <laughs> you know, even in this room, there can be a deep sense of God's transcendence in God. Because we as the temple are gathered together. His people are the holy temple, the dwelling place for God. His presence, his power. There's a beauty that is going to come from that. Like this, what we do in this space is not just supposed to be true, where we sing a bunch of true things, say a bunch of true things, listen to a bunch of true things, it's also meant to be beautiful because there's a sense that God is actually at work among us. Like everything we talked about last week, that what we do in here is not ordinary, it's extraordinary. Because the Spirit is here, working and moving in us in power, evidence of God's presence, which is supposed to be beautiful. 
So what is the church meant to be? It's meant to be the household of God, family, who loves one another, cares for one another, serves one another. It's meant to be the temple of God, where the transcendent power and presence and beauty of God comes to dwell. So it's worth pausing there saying, doesn't that sound great? Like, like genuinely, like, put aside your lived experience, put aside what you, like, what you have experienced and gone through as a human, as a Christian, trying to live into the church, and just look at the picture of the scriptures. Isn't it beautiful? A family where I can belong, I can know people and be known, I can be taken care of, I can walk alongside of others, the temple of God where God's presence and power and beauty dwells. That sounds awesome. I want that. If you're here today, it's because there's some substance of you that's like, that sounds attractive, that sounds appealing. And yet, the question then becomes, why can't we do that? Like, why can we not live into this vision? Why can we not be what God says the church is meant to be. The passage tells us it's one word found in two different places, verse 14 and verse 16. It says in verse 14, He himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of what? Hostility. Verse 16, He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the what? Hostility. Passion says the reason why we cannot be the household and temple of God is one simple reality. Hostility. Hostility. Now, the original context of Ephesians 2 is describing the hostility, the tensions and divisions that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles, non-Jewish people in the first century. So the gospel has arrived to both groups, and now they're trying to figure out, we're very different, very, very, very different. How do we actually live as the family and temple of God? Because between these two groups, there is massive and deep-rooted hostility. The hostility between Jew and Gentile in the ancient world was cultural, it was ethnic, it was historical. I mean, these were two distinct groups with two opposite sets of values and transitions. And this traditions, and this hostility is so great that Paul calls it, quote, a dividing wall that needs to be torn down and demolished. It's a thick division. What keeps us from being all that the church is meant to be? What keeps us from being the family of God who lives in unity and peace? What keeps us from being the temple where God's power and presence and beauty shines? This unity, hostility, walls. This is why we can't be the church as the scriptures call us to be. It's because sin divides us, right? It separates us from God, yes, but it also separates us from one another. It pulls us apart. It's like because of the reality of sin in our hearts and in the world, the gravitational bent of our lives is away from each other, not towards. If I knew anything about magnets, I would give the illustration. But it's just like, if I just sit, my default, because of the reality of sin, is not going to be to slowly move towards you. It's going to be to slowly move away from you. And you see this in the very beginning of the scriptures, right? I mean, think back all the way to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Why does God create Eve? Because it's not good for man to do what? Alone. So even in God's original design, there is within it this idea that mankind is supposed to live in deep relationship and unity and flourishing with God, and deep relationship, unity, and flourishing with one another. And what happens? Genesis chapter 3. Right? They eat from the fruit, they rebel against God, do what he says not to do, sin enters the world, and what are the next two things they do? They hide from God, and they accuse one another. Sin has not broken both relationships. Our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with one another. So much so, the very next chapter, one generation later, their firstborn kills their second. 
It's like the scriptures are like, hey, don't even get to Genesis 4 before you see how messed up sin causes our relationships with God and relationships with one another to be. Like the Bible says, don't miss the corrosive disunity and damage that sin is going to cause, not just between you and God, but also between you and one another. And so what does this mean for us? It means that the trouble you have caring about and relating to that difficult community group member is not just a matter of personality or life stage differences. It's sinful and sin-fueled division. That means the seemingly incredible barrier you have to go to community group on Wednesday night that you don't have on Thursday to show up to the movie is not just a matter of Wednesday being a hard day than Thursdays. It's sinful and sin-fueled division. The part of you that wants to pull back and isolate, when you actually start to open up just a little bit and be vulnerable a little bit, it's like everything in you is screaming, don't do it! Danger! 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 That's not just you deciding if you should be self-protective or not. That's sinful and sin-fueled division. The inability to feel like you can forgive the person in the church who has wronged you. It's not just some bad cultural ideas about self-care. Sinful and sinful. Here's the deal as much as we want to point the finger, it's all of our faults. And that's what the scriptures want us to understand. We're all to blame. This division is at the core of our makeup and wiring as humans. I remember a few years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, just uh, vocalizing some frustrations that I had with the difference of the church I read about in the scriptures and the church that I see in the world today. Like just look at Acts 2, this beautiful picture that we even put before people in our basics class, right? We want to see people give of, sell their possessions and give generously to those in need. And daily gathering around the good news of the scriptures and praying for one another, sharing meals in each other's homes, and seeing daily people being added. And I'm just con- confessing to him that I'm just frustrated with the picture I see in the scripture not matching up with the picture that I see in reality. He said to me, I thought this was so helpful and so clear. He said, Hey, Tim, did you keep reading the story? Because Acts 2 is, sure, it's beautiful, but did you get to Acts 12? Or Acts 15? Did you turn over two books to 1 Corinthians? It's a whole book about fighting. And then you go one more book to 2 Corinthians, and it's a follow-up letter about the fighting. And then you have Galatians, that's really beautiful. And then you get to Ephesians, and it's another book about fighting. And then he says this line, as I was at that point ready to change the subject. He looked at me, and he said it was just the kindest smile. He said, and by the way, Tim, if you were to find a church as perfect as the one in your mind, why do you think they'd let you in? Not <laughs> this is what we do, right? We stand back from the church, separated and isolated, as if we even can, one in a second. And we say, they're not unified. They're not loving. They're not kind. Yet, what are we doing in that setting back? The very thing we're The very thing we're hurling accusations at. The church isn't welcoming. What are you doing by running from it? Is that welcoming? Is that creating the hospitable environment? Is that creating the family? Is that creating the temple? This is all of us. It's deep and pervasive. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and it will continue. Even though being sanctified by Jesus is really the So the question becomes for us, well, is there any hope? But that, that's the question we then have to ask, right? If this is what the church is meant to be, yet this is why it's broken, is there any hope? There is. It's the good news for us this morning. But before I tell you where our hope is found, let me be really clear about where your hope is not found. Hope for our future participation in the church is not found in the church. Stay with me on this. 
The hope of the church is not the church. Like the way you leave confessing and believing in the Holy Catholic Church and your place in the communion of saints is not by getting a better church. It's not by finding the perfect place. That's what we think. If I just found the perfect community that was everything I wanted and every way that I was included that I wanted to be, then I would get more involved. But that's how churches, unfortunately, sell it, right? Like you show up to church and they're like, yeah, I know that old church was really mean to you, but like not us, we do real all-caps community. <laughs> right? But I need you to hear me on this. Hope for your reputation in the church is not the church. Because as long as your participation in the church is based on the church, it will keep letting you down, including here, right? Some of y'all are new, and I love this, and you're, you're coming around, and you're like, I want to be in, this place is awesome, you felt so welcome, and I'm like, that's great, I love it here too, I love being one of the pastors here, I love being a part of this church family, and unfortunately, stick around for like two months. Because we're sinners, we're going to hurt you, and spoiler alert, you are too, we're going to hurt us. Our hope and our full commitment to the local church can never be found in the local church because it will always come up short. So our participation in the church and our ability to confess, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and my placement in the communion of saints must be built on the foundation of the church itself. That's Christ. Christ alone. But back to the pastor's view, this is abundantly clear. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. But through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Here's the point the text is making. Jesus breaks down the walls. Jesus kills the hostility. Jesus is the one who comes and preaches peace to those who are far and those who are near. Jesus is the one who destroys and dismantles the divisions our sin wants to build. And did you see how he does it? By his blood, verse 13. In his flesh, verse 14. In himself, verse 15. Through the cross, verse 16. Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility through the shedding of his blood. Through his death and his sacrifice, Jesus creates out of two people, one people, the church. So, look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you now, now, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christ has now brought us together. He has reconciled us to one another. We're not strangers anymore, but citizens and a part of God's family. This is what it means to become The reconciling work of Christ on the cross, on our behalf, would make us right with God. Also, right with God. Listen to me. That's not just like a good thing. That's an essential, central done thing. See, being a part of the family of God is not an add-on to the good news of salvation. Being a part of the family of God is central to the good news of salvation. You're not saved to Jesus, and then you decide if you want to interact with these people in a meaningful way. Like, that's what we think about, right? Like, because of the grace of God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, I'm saved and made right with God, and now it's up to me to choose a local church I want to participate in to help my individual faith journey with Jesus. But here's the reality of the scriptures. Church is not an add-on to salvation. 
you are saved into his people, the church. This is how Ben Meyer says it. It's such strong language that all week I've been like, do I believe this? And I, yes. It's strong, especially as individualistic Western Americans. Just listen to this. The message of the gospel is directed not primarily to individuals, but to this new community. God's plan of salvation all along has been to create one human society as the bearer of the divine image. That's true, Genesis 3 onward. In that sense, the church isn't just the way people respond to salvation. The church is salvation. Church, if you separate out the horizontal reconciling work of Christ, you lose the gospel. If Jesus has only come to reconcile you to God, that's beautiful and good and true. What are you going to do with everybody else around you when you're in heaven? He comes to bring us into this thing, to break down the dividing wall of hostility. But then, then notice, this is what speaks for us even now. That's the past reality. Like that's what Christ has done. His blood has reconciled us. But the past is just the end of the past. Look at verse 21. There's an ongoing part to it. It says, in Christ, the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, Ephesians 2 reminds us that the work of the gospel is both finished and ongoing. That Jesus has died for sin once for all, and the Holy Spirit right now is working that out in the context of our actual real life community. In other words, the gospel reconciles us and keeps reconciling us. The gospel breaks down walls and keeps breaking down walls. We are joined together and we are being built together in Christ. That is our hope. What is our hope? We might actually get little glimpses of the family and the temple here on earth. Our hope is Christ. Only a church that keeps Christ at the center. Not our preferences, not our secondary theological issues, Christ and his gospel and his redeeming work. Only that can be the church that moves more and more built up by the Spirit into the family temple. Past and it's not going. Christ has done the work. Christ is continuing to do the work. Which means when we want to put up more walls, when we want to keep dividing, Christ has the power to tear them down. When we want to isolate and we want to pull back, Christ has the power to unite us together. We want to step back, we want to withhold, we want to judge, we want to point fingers. Christ has the power to humble us with his love and grow our affections for those that we just frustrated with five minutes ago. Is it difficult to confess and believe in the Holy Catholic Church? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Is it difficult to want to engage over the long haul with the local body of believers? Of course. Of course it is. Yes. Pulling back holding out, judging the church, pointing at the church, saying they don't get it. All of that is just another way to get it. Another way sin wins. It won't solve the problem. The only thing that will solve the problem, the only thing that makes the church what it ought to be is the finished and finishing work of Christ in the gospel. Because that's what we need. We need to believe the gospel. We need to keep believing the gospel. It's our hope love one another, to be the family as he calls us to be, to be the temple where his presence dwells. So I just want to close with two questions for you to consider. Two questions. First, have you joined the Holy Catholic Church? Not by coming to a building, not by signing your name on a piece of paper, not by trying to do some good deeds. Have you 
acknowledged, confessed, repented of your sin before the Lord, seen how that sin has separated you from God and from his people, confessed it, repented of it, asked for Jesus to save you, forgive you, wash you clean, and then make both of those relationships reconciled. Have you put your faith in Jesus? And second, you're allowing the Holy Spirit to do what the pastor says he does. You're allowing the Holy Spirit to build you together into a dwelling place for God alongside other real live sinners in a real live particular church. If you get that, right? This doesn't happen in the abstract. Do you, do you get that? Like some of us, we read that last passage and we're like, sweet, going into a holy temple in the Lord. I want a hoodie. I want a coffee mug. I'm going to journal about it tomorrow morning. I'm going to pray about it. As long as I don't actually have to do anything to interact with other people. This doesn't happen in the abstract. We're not built into the people of God in ethereal ideas. We're built in the reality of day in, day out, difficult relationships. Tough love, forgiveness, care, and the messiness of a specific local church like this one. And so for some of us, the invitation is to become a part of a local church like this one. Not be us. Remember from class of September 17th? I love you here. I love this church. Somewhere. There are other good gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving, faithful churches in our city. Find somewhere. Join somewhere. Be included somewhere. Commit somewhere. Don't be what the scriptures give you no freedom to be. I'm a big C church person. Does it make any sense? This is stupid analogy. Don't use it. College football starts in seven days. No, that's like week zero. It really starts in 13 days, right? College game day is going to be like half a mile from here. Game cops are going to beat the Tar Heels. No shame. Yeah. Love it. All right? Here's the deal about it. Here's, here's, here's what it is like if you were to say, I'm a part of the Big C Church and not a part of the Little C Local Church. It's like you meeting someone and you're like, hey, you're jacking up. What do you do? And they're like, oh, I play college football. Cool. Awesome. Like, what? What team? Uh, no, I, I play college football. Sweet. Uh, like, what team do you play for in college football? No, 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 you don't understand. I play for Big C college football. No, good sir, you don't understand. You play for Big C college football when you play for Little C college. Right? It makes no sense we put it into any other category, right? Or we say, okay, I'm part of the Big C church. No, I'm just going to commit to the Big C church. And no, the way you commit to the Big C church, according to Jesus, according to the scriptures, and according to the church history, is through your participation in the Little C local church. So belong. Somewhere, somewhere, and expect them to be me. Expect them to hurt you, expect them to be sinners, and also expect that you're a sinner too, and you're going to need the reconciling work of Jesus. Today, tomorrow, a month from now, a year from now, a decade from now, three decades from now, we're going. That's what we need. The hope that we have is that the gospel has reconciled us to one another and will continue to reconcile us to one another. Christ is the hope. Not our church, not the church, not a church. Christ is the hope. That's how we're going to each other's lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We need you. You're so kind to us, Lord, that you would give us not only a father, but that you would give us brothers and sisters. It is hard, Lord, that we just confess our inability to live into these relationships as we call us to. We confess our sin, we confess our divisions, we confess the ways we want to pull back, isolate, run away, and we confess the ways that we want to create a list 50 long and then some why we can't engage with the 
often with the Lord, that we see your word. We trust your word. We trust that the reconciling work of Christ has made us right with you through the blood of Jesus, but also with the Lord. So we want to lose that part of the gospel. We celebrate and worship you. We glory in the reality that you made us right with yourself, but we also want to glory in the reality that you made us right with each other. So Lord, we ask that you would do the work that you can do, only you can do, by the work of your Holy Spirit. You build us up as we feel in the You are the hope for the church, and you are the hope for this church. For the citizens' churches don't want anything else but the good news of the gospel or what Christ has done. We will not.